optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now would have seen an appropriate time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably athletic greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, my sexy little munchkins. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I'm sitting in a freezing cold house with an overdose of oolong tea and the unnamed crazy Bulgarian who's back to his antics to help me with book launch. Samulevsky. I have no idea what that means, but he's fun to have around, like mini-me. All right, the next episode that you are going to listen to was recorded live in... The City of Angels, Los Angeles, in front of a sold-out audience of around 2,000 people at Summit LA17. You can check out what Summit's all about at summit.co. And uh, you can find links to everything, all the show notes, all the good stuff from this conversation, which is freaking hilarious. It's quite a roller coaster with Brian Grazer at uh, tim.blog forward slash podcast. So you can find all the links, all the goodies, favorite books, all this stuff from every episode at tim.blog forward slash podcast. And if you haven't checked it out, take a look at the latest crazy project that is launching right now, uh, tribeofmentors.com. That is my new tome, tribeofmentors.com. And you can see sample chapters, the full list of mentors from every possible discipline you can imagine 
you're always asking, how do I find a mentor? If I'm the average of the five people I associate with most, how do I learn from them? This is how. Tribeofmentors.com. Take a look. So without further ado, as I like to say before I talk even more, please enjoy this conversation with the incredible, the entertaining, and ever so effective Brian Grazer. How's everybody doing today? It's all downhill after that intro, I'm afraid. Yeah, the secret to happiness is low expectations, at least for me. And our guest today is the real draw, and I'm so excited to be speaking with them. But before we get to that, let's just roll a little sizzle reel that we have to whet your appetite. So, AV guys, if you could roll the reel. Houston, we have a problem. Find Professor London. Either you're somebody, or you're nobody. Oh! I'm gonna turn around with a great smile and walk my white ass back across eight miles. Trigger an alarm and I'll blow your head off. Stop screwing with me! Woo! Might make your head blow off. Was it good for you? I've had better. Awesome. Mission control. We're looking at a red planet. I mean, this stuff has been really wild. May I have your autograph, sir? I want to be a scientist just like you. Move up, move up! If you decide to accept that, you are seriously fly, son. Don't forget to thank me, baby. Don't forget to thank your cookie. We are in the middle of a war, one that's been going on forever. What are you talking about? You asked what would be worth killing for. Witness the biggest cover-up in human history. You can't get involved in these people's problems. I don't think they're going to make it if they're not together. To help arm our agents so that they have a fighting chance against the submachine guns of some of the most dangerous characters in the history of American criminality. Idea than just the concert. We all have the same struggles. Ladies and gentlemen, here are the Beatles. Thank you so much for believing in my weirdness. Clear eyes, full hearts. How big is the universe? Infinite. How do you know for sure? I don't. I just believe. So as some of you know, I'm just a professional dilettante who gets to sometimes interview people who are world-class at what they do, and this is certainly the case. Quick housekeeping question for people backstage. 
clock says 55 minutes. I could spend that much on one movie. I assume I have 90 minutes, head nod or no? Do we have clarity? Yes? Okay, great. So let me do a little read. This is a rare, rarely cited live edition of the Tim Ferriss Show. So thank you for coming. So who is our guest today? Brian Grazer, as you know, is an Academy Award and Emmy Award winning producer whose films and television shows have been nominated for 43 Oscars and 187 Emmys. Just let that sink in for a second. Uh, there are people whose careers are defined by being Emmy nominated one time. All right. 187. His movies include A Beautiful Mind, Apollo 13, American Gangster, Eight Mile, Friday Night Lights, Parenthood, and Splash. His television shows include, most recently, Genius about Albert Einstein, Empire 24, and Arrested Development. Grazer has been named one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world, and his book, A Curious Mind, subtitle The Secret to a Bigger Life, is a New York Times bestseller. Please welcome to the stage, Brian Grazer. <laughs> okay, here we are. And here we are. Thanks and we're using intro. two sets of mics because, as some of you may know, two is one and one is none. Always have a backup. So I thought there's <laughs> so many hundreds of ways we could start this, but I'm going to go and use a tried and true playbook. The way that I think all good interviews start is by talking about four foot ten Jewish women. So could you, <laughs> could you please tell us about your grandmother? Okay, grandmother. Um, I had a um, pretty normal family, or felt, actually it looked like it was normal. Um, but, but I did have, in the entire family, I had one person that was a champion of me, that was a believer, uh, and that was my grandma, Grandma Sonia, who I dedicated my book to, and should be dedicating everything to. Um, and you really just need one believer. She was a tiny, little, feisty, renegade named Sonia. She was about 4'10", and uh, she would watch me. She, I'd see her every week, and as an elementary school student, she'd tell me I was going to be special, I am special, and she meant it in the best sense. And I would be looking at my report card, and it was all Fs. Everything was an F. And there was a point where I kind of thought, there is really no empirical data that supports that I'm going to be special. Um, but nothing defied her. Nothing could wear her down. I just, um, and so, and, and, and she was there also an early supporter of me asking questions and using curiosity as a force or an engine to understand things because, uh, and we spoke for only a minute, because uh, I had, was, I was struck with dyslexia and, uh, but it wasn't thought of as dyslexia then. It was just, I was just embarrassed too that I couldn't answer questions and read books and you sort of duck and hide. So the That's dyslexia, kind of sad, I mean, you're though, clearly <laughs> very smart and very curious and we're gonna spend a lot of time on curiosity. But I'd like to, before we get to Brian Grazer in quotation marks, to talk about Brian Grazer the Younger, not to be confused with the Roman of the same name, but it's easy to look at people, say, on one of these stages and assume that they're superheroes who have just been hitting home runs with every at-bat. I want to talk about, specifically, and I actually don't know the full story, but could you tell us about your experience being cut from the football team? Oh, okay. Um, so 
first of all, I'm from Los Angeles. I'm from the San Fernando Valley, the flat part. The um, <laughs> really okay. So <laughs> good, yeah. Um, so uh, I went to Chatsworth High School, Nobel Junior High. Come on, really? All right. So <laughs> all right. So I'm at Chatsworth. So first of all. I was a very feisty kid, and I was uh, very resourceful and had a lot of energy and could keep up in sports with all of my friends in elementary school and junior high. When we transitioned into high school, all my friends became 6'3 or 6'4. And as you saw, I'm, I'm, my license says 5'8", I'm not sure. Um, so in any event, but I thought I could play football, and so I went, out, I went out for football, did Hell Week, which is like what it sounds like, Hell Week. And I got through it, and the coaches said, okay, everybody in an auditorium. So there was about 300 kids all in an auditorium, and they were to state that the job was your status, your name, and your status. So it would be Steve, um, Perry Shellmeyer, tailback, uh, Richard Cox, I'm giving you the real names, quarterback, Brian Grazer, tailback, incorrect. I, I, everything stopped. And I, he said, uh, after he said incorrect, Coach Ogawa said, cut. So I got cut from high school football in front of about 300 kids. And it was pretty, it was, look, it was, just, it was momentarily or maybe a little longer than that, traumatizing. Because before I had to give my stat, name and status, I was a human being. And once I did that, I was no longer a human being. And uh, certainly in that room. And it stuck with me. And, and that's, that, and, but it stuck with me and I retained the memory of those 10 seconds. And it, if you want me to go, uh, it gave life to, when I read a book, it was called Friday Night Lights. And... There's a lot of ways, everything is about, um, all content I think involves a, a unique perspective. And so my perspective on this book was, sure it's about small town, a small town in Odessa, Texas, and sure it's about what small town living is like, and it is about high school football, but it's also about the fragility of what it's like to grow up as a young boy, 15, 16, 17 years old. And that a single moment, like the one I just had, can be absolutely seismic in somebody's life and can completely redirect where you thought you were going. So, I was able, so that was my connective tissue to this book called Friday Night Lights. And then I grabbed a hold of it, and I eventually, I mean, the long, I have a short story, I ended up, end up making it into a movie, um, but wasn't that simple, of course. And then I ended up turning it into the TV series that you guys probably know, Friday Night Lights. Um, did you share that story of getting cut with people in your family or your close friends? Did any of them, was, that, was any person in your life able to help you repair that or was that something that you did on your own? Uh, <laughs> well, that's a, issue, that's a shame issue. Uh, so I probably didn't share it. No one's actually asked me that question on stage. Uh, I didn't really share that. I shared it once I made this movie, and I was proud of the movie, but I didn't share it at the time, no. Were, were there any role models or coaches or teachers who acted as a counterweight to that, who perhaps helped you or particularly inspired you? 
Oh, I had a coach, Wiley. Coach Wiley was a football coach and kind of tough, but he was also the swim coach. And I had this accident experience of being incredibly good as a hundred butterfly swimmer. And it was the oddest thing because I felt so badly about myself because of the, the football that I went, into, I, I, I went into track and I did gymnastics, but that wasn't very satisfying. I thought, well, I'll try something else. It's also a way to duck out of first period. So I went, took swimming. I went out for swimming. And the worst, absolute, so we had a pre-meet, uh, a Los Angeles City meet. There's about 60 schools in Los Angeles City. And they go, he goes, Grazer, lane eight. But I've never really swam the butterfly. I just kind of held the side of the thing, and I swam a little bit like that, uh, freestyle. And he goes, lane eight, butterfly. <laughs> you know, like, okay. <laughs> they kind of become alert. And I get in lane eight. And lane eight, by the way, let me tell you, is the worst lane. Because you're getting all the flow over and everything else, and you're kind of bobbing as you're swimming. And uh, I... I'm swimming this butterfly that I hadn't really swam, and I hit the, the side of the, the end of the pool, and I thought everybody was out of the pool. And Wiley's there with a clock, and he goes, you just broke the city record. And I'm going, oh, that's amazing. And I looked, and everybody was behind me, and he became my hero. <laughs> because he then championed me. He, my grandmother could relay it off to Coach Wiley. <laughs> now, if... if... <laughs> I'm just imagining like the mutant-like shoulder mobility that somehow <laughs> granted you this gift, uh, but I'm not going to dwell on that. Uh, it's my understanding, based on my homework, is that you dropped out of college, or that you dropped out of school, and that a teacher recommended that you do that. Is that, is that accurate, or am I reading the wrong vandalized uh, page on the internet somewhere? <laughs> well, it's in there somewhere, but it's, it's more that... Um, as a freshman in college, I, there was a speech, oh boy, this really actually parallels what's going on right now. There's a metric involved. Actually, I was in speech class. And uh, there was about 125 kids in this freshman speech class. Is this speech meaning public speaking class? Public speaking, it's public speaking class. And it was uh, a Mr. French. Sounds like a television name. Um, <laughs> in any event, so Mr. French says, why don't you stay behind? So I stay behind, he puts his arm around me, Remember exactly what he looked like. And he said, I want to make a recommendation. My recommendation is that you discontinue going to college. <laughs> I've been watching you. You've been in the class. I really think that this is kind of a, it's, you know, like, not futile, but a little bit of a waste of time for everybody. <laughs> and I thought about it. I thought, wow, what is this guy? This is horrible. Um, so I didn't quit college. I, I did stay in college, but he was really pretty emphatic about going to an occupational school, which he recommended. What was the, what was the occupational school? Oh, oh it was, um, it's on Woodman Avenue, but it was like you're working with your hands. Anything to do with it was like working with your hands. What effect? Like he would know. Yeah, what, what, <laughs> <laughs> what, effect, what effect did that have on you? That, that transition to an Well, I powered school. through, uh, somehow got through that class. I got like a C or something. And I, I, st I did stay in college. I graduated USC. I did pretty well, actually, because I somehow found a system in the last two years, uh, how to uh, test. 
you know, just a system of being able to synthesize and then literally um, integrate it into my system right before I went to sleep at night. So I was able to assimilate it and actually perform. So it wasn't fully just memorized, it was assimilated. Which, what was your system? Well, the system was really, I, it just, I would just continue to well, aggregate what was going on in the class. And by writing it down? Sorry? By writing it by down. By writing it down and reading books and yellow penning stuff. And, and, um, and then I would just continue. I was always editing the system, almost like a movie, as I was propelling myself through the class. And when it came to any big test, I was, I was at a point where I'd synthesized it to something I could really look at in a, less than an hour before I went to bed. And I, I wasn't really, I mean, now I would say it was a way, it did enter your subconsciousness, and, uh, and I was able to really, do, I really did well. But so, then I did discontinue going to law school. I think that's what you... you right, got it. Yeah. But you Why went, did you discontinue going to law school? I thought there'd be no way I'd pass those tests. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you go to law school? Well, I didn't really know what to do. So when you graduate college, you kind of don't know what to do. I mean, well, you guys probably... Don't I know still don't know what to do. You guys so. are clearly know what to do. You're here. Um, but I didn't know what to do. So I thought, well, you know, one of these... I'll go to law school. And so... Uh, but, okay. So what happened is, I thought I'll go... Okay, I thought, okay, I get into law school. And then I over... I mean, I'm living in an apartment complex in Santa Monica. And I overhear these three guys that are all... Gradu just had graduated law school. And... One of them says, yeah, man, I just left the cushiest job. And I'm thinking, wow, what an interesting word, cushy job. It must mean really easy. So I, I'm, so I literally opened up the screen, the window, and closed the drapes so I could li really <laughs> listen in. <laughs> and he says, yeah, it was so easy, man. We got, it was a $5 an hour job, and they gave us a company car. I got a company car, and it was at Warner Brothers in the legal department. And they said, uh, he said his name, Peter Connect. But I literally, when they walked away, I just, I got the number, 8436000, just out 411, God And I called and said, I understand you might be looking for a law clerk, and I'm preparing myself to go to law school, and I'd love to come in and meet. And I got the job that day. So, <laughs> so, so then, that leads to a lot of other stuff. So basically, then, I now have the job as the law clerk, and literally, it is the crappiest little job. It's the crappiest little job in the tiniest little office with no windows. I mean, it's literally had to, it was like a prison cell. But I was in there, and every once in a while, they'd say, you got to deliver papers to, they'd name famous people or powerful people, the woman named Sue Mingers that was the head of ICM, that, uh, International Creative Management, and the most important agent in the world. You got to deliver these papers. And so pretty early on, I had to deliver some papers to Warren Beatty. And Warren Beatty was a giant movie star. And he's living at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and had like a penthouse, a giant penthouse area. And an assistant to an assistant comes downstairs to say, like, hand me the papers, kid. You know, like that kind of a thing. And I say, I think, why don't I say I, they're not valid unless I get them to Mr. Beatty, my hand to his hand? <laughs> so I, I try that out and it, it kind of works. 
<laughs> and another assistant comes down, like, we're having trouble with this kid down here. You know, like, he says you have to hand it. And so his number one personal assistant comes down. I said, look, I'm just telling you straight up, these papers are invalid unless I hand them directly to Mr. Beatty. <laughs> so they go, okay. And so I go upstairs, and I, now it's like, I see this Adonis, you know, Warren Beatty, and I literally, I go, hand on the papers, and I create a conversation right away, and I just, by accident, into, like, expanding that conversation into, like, an hour of, of talking, and the guy really dug me, and I'm thinking, this is amazing. I can do this every time. <laughs> so, so... So I start doing it every time, and I get every person I get to go see, the, the author of the, uh, the Exorcist, I literally, I had to drive it out to Malibu, and before you knew it, I got through the butler, and I'm sipping espressos on the porch over the ocean. I'm only 22, and, but, but I'm really learning a lot. I'm feeling like, wow, this is a great sort of learning tool also. I mean, I'm also using the Warner Brothers assets to advantage me, but... <laughs> I wasn't really hurting anybody. I wasn't stealing. And so, um, so that's, that's sort of the beginning of, of it. And then I discontinued going to law school, and I convinced my boss, can I stay there for one more year? I'm pushing law school a year. Right. But so uh, just I'll, I'll end this very quickly. So then no, what happened is... you don't have to end quickly. I think I this is fine. So I realized that I could actually use my... Oh, so then what happens is... <laughs> sorry. So then I see that somebody, a senior vice president of business affairs, got fired. And his, he had this giant office, and it was vacant. And I say to my boss, Peter Connect, who started with Jack Warner in the day, who leaves like at lunch, I say, do you think I could have that office? You know, and he goes, sure, no problem. So I now have an office bigger than my boss's. And it's so far away from my boss, he doesn't even notice me, really. <laughs> Um, and, and then, but I'm right outside the cadre of decision makers. The chairman of the board, uh, Ted Ashley, the vice chairman of the board uh, was uh, John Kelly and then Frank Wells. Okay, so then they would go, hey, you know, like, you seem like a good kid. Why don't you sit on my couch and watch me work? And I thought, wow, this is great. I'm really learning a lot watching them work. <laughs> hold on, hold on. <laughs> I wasn't going to interrupt, but I have to hit pause. I've never had that happen to me. <laughs> How... How did it come to pass that they said, hey, kid, you seem like I would enjoy having you sit on my couch watching me work? <laughs> well, I was a very... Maybe I'm the only one wondering that, but yeah. just well, in case. Well, I, I did have this tool that I didn't really imagine could be the superpower of curiosity, but I had this sort of bridge where I could ask questions. There was a huge circular driveway that where the big shots could park, and I would find my way to sort of be down there when they're parking their car, and I'd say, hey, and they'd say, walk on them up, with, come on up with me. And, and uh, one of them took a real liking to me, and his office had no desk, it was just, I, I was so admired the office. It had no desk, it had like a big like swordfish like, that he <laughs> caught, and boats and stuff, and I'm thinking, wow, this is the life. Um, <laughs> this seems like the right business. <laughs> um, <laughs> But then what I did, I had two union secretaries, and I can do this quickly. I had two union secretaries. <laughs> you don't that have they to do it quickly. I had two union secretaries that they wouldn't fire, and they were really strict because they didn't like that I was using the office to 
for me, to benefit of me. And so they were like getting really mad at me and they got my parking revoked and stuff like that. <laughs> and and um, there got to be a point, well, I started to use the office every single day for a year, I met a new person that was getting something done in the entertainment business. From every, every chairman of every studio, from Mel Brooks to Richard Brooks. I mean, uh, stars, and I would just, I would call up, I know the speech so well, hi, my name is Brian Grazer, I work at Warner Brothers Pictures. This is not associated with studio business, but I'd like to meet your boss for the following reasons. And I might be like three or four tiers down, I'm saying this to, you know, like, uh, you know, to one assistant, to another assistant, and I could wear everybody down eventually. And, um, and then my assistant said, we're sort of sick of you, we're getting you fired. I said, okay, hold on, before you fire me, I will give you half of my salary if you don't get me fired. So, so they took half my salary. Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> so, just a few details so I can fill in the gaps. Apologize to the audience, I'm from Long Island, my brain doesn't move very quickly. So, all right, where to begin? <laughs> First, what would some example reasons be? I want to meet your boss for the following reasons. Do you remember, what types of reasons would you cite? Uh, okay, okay, that's a real question. Okay, okay sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I like to lead with my terrible okay. fake questions to warm you no, up for the no, real that's questions. that's a real, like, a, okay. Well, what I did learn to do on the series, I did learn to prepare. So it wasn't just like fly by the seat of my pants. I really, really prepared. So first of all, by being in that office, I would read the trades and I, I, I decoded the language of entertainment. Because the language of show business is like, it looks like, hey, let's go to a party and hang out. There's a lot more than let's go to a party and hang out. And so I was able to like fly my little Cessna through this fog and find my way to understand beneath the language, I started to understand the mechanics of how it worked and how to actually, where the leverage, where the leverage uh, was. So the leverage could be the studio because they have money, or it could be creative leverage because a director was expert at something, or it could be that you just had IP, or it could be that you create IP. So I was able to understand all the system of leverage. Um, and so, so I was able to I was able to say to somebody, I've, I've researched your boss, I'd love to meet him for the following reason, and the following reason, like Robert Evans, it would be real reasons, like I saw The Godfather and I can't believe that he could be, was involved in the creation of that, plus love story, they were so diverse, I mean, I mean literally stuff like that. Uh, so I, I was good at it, and, but there was a little bullshit in it too, but I was good at it. <laughs> so, and, and then I had this oh, sorry, moment yeah. with, with uh, Lou Wasserman. Yes. So yes. basically, Lou Wasserman was the king of the entire movie business. He was the patriarch of it, it all. And he ran Universal, um, the Universal uh, Movie and Television Company. And I'm thinking, wow, would I like to meet Lou Wasserman? He is the man. I'm going to meet him. And he was sort of like the elderly statesman, and he was friends with uh, Henry Kissinger. I mean, he had it all. He was a man for all seasons. And so... I, I, I target a lot of his assistants, and I eventually met a Melody, his number one assistant, in the parking lot, way out on the lot, and I said, oh, come on, please, I, I begged her anyway. And she said, okay. So, oh, so then what happens is, I'm in the elevator going up to now meet Lou Wasserman. Press it up, I get into the elevator, now I'm on the 14th floor, I get out, he's got his hands in the air like this, like don't go any further. <laughs> 
So he wasn't like any other normal guy I was meeting. He stopped me before I could get into his office, kind of like that look of like, you're just bullshitting me. And I started sort of, it was a look like I didn't, I couldn't say much. I, did, I was sort of frozen. And he said, wait one minute. And he goes into his office and he comes back with a, a pencil and a legal tablet. And he said, you put the pencil to the paper and it has greater value than it did as separate parts. Get out of here. So, uh, so I take the pencil and the paper and I'm now escorted to the elevator. And I thought, what is he saying? What's going on here? And I realized what he's saying is like, you've got to do better than this. You better start writing ideas, even if they're little ideas that you can breathe, breathe life into or that have some, have value. And did and he so say that? So that was the beginning of like being substantial. Did he, <laughs> did he say that because he saw in a letter some inkling of wanting to create your own movies? Or was there something else that led him to make that recommendation? Or, think, did, or was it just a general lack of substance that he saw, and therefore he said, hey, kid, I, I, I love he the kind bluster. Of, he might have liked me a little bit, a little tiny bit, but mostly he just felt like, let me give him some advice and get him out of here. Some okay. real advice. Like, so I, I'm going to back up just a second to the half a salary thing. Yeah. So in that case, you're, you're offering half your salary to an assistant who helped X, Y, or Z powerful or well-known person to prevent you from getting fired? Yeah, there were two a union, one's a paralegal and one was a secretary, that were there from the previous boss. And I was This is just on your lot or near your office? On the Warner Brothers lot. I see, got it. Got yeah, it. sorry. Okay. On the Warner Brothers lot. And that those two secretaries of, of, were there in the office of the executive that I then inhabited his office. I see, got sorry. it. No, no, that makes sense. And that so makes they were kind of going, hey, you're like a scammer, cut it out. And they, they got my parking stripped away, so I had to park the copper penny across the street and just a bunch of stuff like that. <laughs> so the, the, the art and craft of getting these meetings is something I want to talk about. And you're very well known for these curiosity conversations. But do you recall how you struck up a conversation with Warren Beatty, because... With who? Uh, with, with Warren, early on. With Warren Beatty. Yeah, because early on, uh, everyone, I would imagine during that period of time, is trying to do exactly the same thing. So do you recall at all the approach or what you said that opened okay. the door? Well, I have a system now that's much more refined it, 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 than it was then. But at the time, Heaven Can Wait was built on a movie, uh, of, of, on a... a on material called um, Mr. Deeds Comes to Town, I believe. And I should know this. But you ask good questions. That's why you've got I do. I think, I think you've checked the good factual recall box. And <laughs> We're so, not even going to go there. So I said, will you explain to me like how Mr. Deeds Comes to Town is going to become Heaven Can Wait and kind of a fantasy? Like, what is that going to be? Because that's where the, pa the papers were Mr. Deeds. It was a, it was being, it was, it was, they were all inter, interlinked. And so I started off like that. So I had a prop. Props are very, very, very important. And you've refined it since. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do want to talk about the early days, and then we're going to get to the current, like, model of Lamborghini version <laughs> of, of this. But my, my understanding, and it could be also a misunderstanding, is that there was one line in particular that you used quite a bit that caught my attention at least. And it was along the lines of, I absolutely don't want a job. 
but could yeah. I please meet your boss? So the, the I absolutely don't want a job. Are there any other keys, if that is actually accurate? That's a, a, yes, it's, a, it's accurate. I would say to, and I still say, I'm, there's not going to be an ask. I just want to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. It can be a very short conversation. It's up to you. It's up to your boss, whoever I'm speaking to. Um, but there'll be, you know, essentially, there's, you're never, your boss is not going to be uncomfortable. I'm not going to ask for anything. I'm not going to position him. I'm not going to ask him one of those really hard questions, Barbara Walters questions, you know. I'm not going to do any of that. So basically, you're, everybody's going to be safe here. Mm. Well, that, was the, that was the premise. And how did you select, because it's, it seems like your, your curiosity conversations began with industry insiders, but expanded. When did it start expanding to people in the sciences and in all different fields? Yes. Yeah, so for the year and a half, it was just completely in the population of entertainment. So move, big, you know, people that were getting something done, principals that were getting something done in movies or television. Um, then I got fired. Clearly, I'm going to get fired from that job, right? <laughs> from the Warner Brothers job, I'm, they, they finally fired me. Sam Pasquin fire, finally fired me. What was the, what was the grievous offense? Who's the what, HR? What? What was the camel that broke the, the camel's back? Did I say the camel that broke the camel's yeah, back? Yeah, yeah, no, I know what you That's mean. That's actually very easy to do, the straw that broke the camel's back. <laughs> well, I was doing these curiosity conversations, and I was demanding to meet all those famous people, and, uh, but um, the straw was... I started to use, I started to have, I started, cre I created tremendous access with myself and their story department. The story department had all the early submissions of any script or manuscript that was, uh, that could possibly be sold or bidded upon or was owned by Warner Brothers. And so I was like crawling under the tent and getting all that information. And to be really honest, I think I actually might have tried to kind of create a fake bid on something. <laughs> um, and they, they just got so annoyed with it all. Just, you know, it was, it was like that lecture of, you know, we could, we could uh, you know, file a lawsuit against you, but you're too young, so just get out of here, a version of that. So you were fired, and I was so I got fired. But I wasn't broken down because I was... Fired, but I thought, wow, I am really smart, though. I thought I was so smart. <laughs> I thought I was really cunning, really resourceful, and I had researched a lot now, and I've met a lot of people, and I started to understand their, their, their process, their system of uh, how they would accomplish something, or um, just to keep it simple. And I thought, wow, I'm so smart. I should go from that fired law clerk to being, like, running a movie company, you know? <laughs> It's absurd. But I did think it. So I thought, I'm going to just jump from that guy that's 23 to, like, I should run somebody's movie company. Well, I found that that didn't work at all. So I then started getting unemployment checks. And that really seals the deal where you know it's not working because you're getting an unemployment check. And then I thought, you know what, I'll give myself a little more time and try to pull this thing off, just jump the, jump the ship, you know, like, and so I couldn't, it, did, it didn't work, it didn't work, so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to take a really crummy job. 
I'm going to take a job like as the lowest assistant and be happy with it, like be present in the process of the lowest job, which was kind of an epiphany, but I, well, it was an epiphany, but it was also reality. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so now I'm in the very lowest job working for somebody, his name was Edgar J. Sherrick. Edgar J. Sherrick was Harvard, and he was really smart, and he created the wild world of sports and ran ABC programming, and now is, had left and, and uh, had this giant deal at Warner, uh, uh, coincidentally at Warner Brothers Television, um, but he also had money to bring to it and everything else. I take a job working for Edgar J. Sherrick, as did a, 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 another a, a very esteemed producer exactly at my level named Scott Rudin who I really respect, he's a tremendous taste. We both were baby assistants that, that called ourselves lieutenants. <laughs> and then he was on the East Coast, I was on the West Coast. This boss, and, he, and rest, may he rest in peace, it's totally cool. He was either yelling his lungs out at you or giving you opportunity. So literally, he was very happy to scream at you and yell at you and he could only be happier if other people were there to watch it. <laughs> so, and he did that to Rudin and I, but, but he would give you opportunity. So all those little stories I wrote, a few of them I was able to like sell working for this bigger guy. And so I sold two of them and they became movies for television when I was about 25. One was called Zuma Beach. It was just super attractive people, day in the life of the beach. But, <laughs> But I would sort of say, it's like American graffiti at the beach, you know, like give it a little dignity. <laughs> and then I thought, I can really be highbrow, and I think I'll do, and I, did, I, I, I sold a 20-hour miniseries on the Ten Commandments, where each commandment was used as an underlying theme in a contemporary moral dilemma. And so I produced the Zuma Beach one. My boss was really embarrassed because he was Edgar J. Sherrick. But then when it got good ratings, it was like, everything's fine, you know, like, it was good. And then I started doing the Ten Commandments, and that was good, but he kept yelling at me, and it was really abusive, and I started getting a lot of job offers, like, amazing opportunities. And so I say to him, hey, you think you'd give me a raise? <laughs> no chance. So then I took a job, another, I mean, a better, much better thing. When were we on that subject? <laughs> I think we're on all the subjects. Okay, okay. Uh, Oh, and so from that point, sorry. So, I know what we're talking about. We're talking about transitioning into more... <laughs> Broader cur yeah. curiosity. So once things started to gel and I wrote, this, I wrote Splash, which became a movie, you know, uh, a real-life movie that starred Tom Hanks and a mermaid and all that, um, then I started to say, to, I said to myself, there will be, there'll never be two weeks that, uh, that I don't... Um, that I'm gonna pledge myself, I'm gonna create a discipline that every two weeks I will meet someone that is expert or renowned or committed to something that is unrelated to entertainment. So science, medicine, politics, religion, technology, all art forms, um, and that's what I've done uh, still to this day, and, and without fail ever, and sometimes more than one person every two weeks, but always, once every two weeks. How old were you roughly when you made that commitment to yourself? Well, that exact commitment came at about 27. 27. Yeah. And when did Ron Howard enter hmm? the picture? How did Ron, Ron Howard, Howard come into Ron the picture? Ron Howard, okay. 
So Ron Howard came before Night Shift and Splash, although I'd written the story for Night Shift and the script for Splash, but I couldn't get them to, I couldn't get them made. But I still had this very big deal. I had this big deal at Paramount because Michael Eisner and Barry Diller spotted me and they said, that guy that this guy won't give a raise to will totally pay this guy. He's like an idea machine. And so, um, and so then I got this job and then uh, that was a time where I wanted to meet people. It's still in the business a little bit. And I looked at Ron Howard. He was walking. He was still on Happy Days. I, I, I actually yelled out the window because I had a window in this really good building. I go, Ron, Ron Howard. And like I scared him because he's shy. <laughs> and now he's scared, but I call his office and I speak to his still now assistant, Louisa. And I go, come on, like, da-da-da-da, and I tell you the whole story. Now I'm on the lot, he's on the lot, blah, blah, blah. And so then I get to meet Ron Howard. Ron Howard, literally, it was the craziest thing. He hadn't directed, of course, a big mainstream movie, but he comes into my office, and I felt like it was, it was like he had, like, had an aura of goodness about him. And I thought, wow, do I need goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so this will really be something I need to ground myself as goodness. And I don't care if he hasn't directed. I'll get him to direct, you know, like I'll figure it out. And I also wanted to be a mainstream movie producer because I was produced, I'd produced television, but not, you know, a theatrical film. And then he, I go, I'll back you, man. Da, da, da. I mean, I didn't say man. But that would have scared him too. But, um, but uh Anyway, so that's how that happened. And then the first movie he wanted to make was Night Shift because Night Shift was an R-rated comedy that involved nudity and kind of, you know, was irreverent. And he was just coming off Happy Days and, of course, Andy and Mayberry. And he wanted to go, I don't want to be that clean-cut guy anymore. I still might be that guy, but I don't want to be looked at as that guy. I'm doing the irreverent nude one with nude girls, and I'm not going to do that one. And so, uh, so we got Night Shift made. It wasn't a hit, but it was really solid. And then I was able to convince him to do Splash, and that became our really big success for us. Man. Okay. Yeah. It's taking a applause break. <laughs> this is my game to lose here <laughs> at this point. No, I was like, don't fuck it up, Ferris. All right. Pause. Breathe. One with Yoda. You're doing great. All right. Thank you. What advice would you give to people? Would you recommend that everyone in this room try to have their own versions of curiosity conversations? And if so, what advice would you give them? How can they cultivate that curiosity and broader awareness and knowledge of the world? Okay, a couple thoughts. One is, I bet everybody in this audience is curious. So I, 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 because I know the Summit Group and I, you guys have gone out of your way to come here for the weekend, and so I'm assuming that they, they're, you guys are curious. I mean, the way to maybe further refine it or to use it the way I did, I, of course I'd recommend it, because you gain, um, you, you get the value of a different perspective that is outside of the definition of what you thought you were going to experience. So whatever, whether it's an architect, you think you know what an architect is, or I thought I knew what an architect was, I was wrong. I met Rem Coolhouse, and the first thing he said is it's like a live, architecture is like a living organism. 
I would have never guessed that he'd think of architecture on its base level as a living organism. Um, and I can go through every one of my conversations where I was completely uh, 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 surprised and it either shattered a prejudice or expanded a preconception. And so absolutely do it. And, I, and, and what, what, it's, it, what does it, it, it sort of reaches right into the soul of humanity, um, which I think is something, an access point for all of us, I'm sure. Because at the very, the very minimally, you're being really polite. You know, you're asking somebody genuinely with eye contact and caring, you're asking them, what are you doing or how do you feel? You're, you're getting into something that's kind of real. And the minute you're into some real place, it becomes a really powerful self-perpetuating force that leads to many other questions that are really edifying. So I definitely think that you should do it. And um, the other thing I would, I mean, I'd add if you, if it, to support it is you do have to do homework. It takes a lot of case building and preparation so that you're a good date. My pledge was always, I'm going to be a great date, you know, like, you know, the, the best date you ever had with a guy or a girl, whatever it is, I'm going to be better than that with this one-on-one -on -one conversation. I'm going to keep it so they leave feeling like, wow, something I got something out of it too. It has to be win-win, and it can always be win-win. And these conversations, oddly enough, each conversation was like each individual lived inside of a, was like a dot living inside of a greater constellation of dots. And I just always had faith that they may connect someday. And I found that many of them do connect and form perspectives that are additive in storytelling. And then storytelling is like a startup. Every one of these movies I've made was nurtured out of, a, from zero and is, was kind of a startup. So, so it all kind of works together. For people who... <laughs> <laughs> For people who are excited to actually give this a shot, and they sit down, they find an assistance or publicist's contact information on IMDb Pro or wherever they happen to be searching, just in the case of entertainment, do you have any advice for crafting, say, the email? What are some do's or do nots or specific lines that you found very helpful? Well, you have to start with an insight about the person that's, doesn't, that's not dull, not generic. You, if you're generic, um, I'm also teach, I teach a, the graduating class at USC. So after six years, there's one final class, and it's now called Starting at Zero. And I'm going to do one session that's if you get the chance have 30-second contact in a restaurant or a foot basketball game, and you see that person you want to meet, how to not blow it. Um, and generic questions always blow it. The other thing that always blows it is to ask for information that you could get yourself. So anything you can search, you don't want to ask. You never want to ask in a conversation if you see somebody, uh, how do I reach you? <laughs> it's the worst thing because you figure out how to reach them. They don't want to stand there and have, while you type out their email. They just don't want to do that. Um, now, so now in the email, I think it's once again, you have to say, you have to connect your interest and their interest and then have an insight that lands in the middle. And you're gonna say, give me an example, it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> you know me too well. Uh, 
All right, what are, what are other ways to blow it then? Are there other, other ways to blow it that you see a lot? Or now that you're in a position where you're getting pitched, people want to have conversations uh, and meetings okay. with you. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, um, I'll accept that. So, um, <laughs> I will, sometimes I'll give a speech or I'll have a conversation and people go, no, I don't want to say it that way. Let me say it. I will say no. I mean, I've learned to say no. I don't like to say no. Um, because I'm a pleaser, but I've learned to say no because um, often people just want to know the shortcut. They might disguise the shortcut question, but it's, they want the shortcut. Like, hey, how do you be a producer? Like, I hate that question. Like, I, so, I mean, I don't want to say hate in this crowd, but... Um, <laughs> um, or, you know, there, there are things that, that just are uncomfortable for me, like... Uh, hey, there's no harm in asking. Well, there is a harm in asking. <laughs> um, but I think if you have an insight, uh, you see the movie Dunkirk, and you get a chance to meet the director for a second, you don't want to say, how did you make Dunkirk? You know, you want to say, the best thing is if you saw it. You can't pretend you saw it if you didn't. <laughs> and then you have to say the unique trait about Dunkirk, like, the multiple perspectives of the characters that made it a subjective experience. Or, I mean, I can just invent stuff, but I mean, right now, but uh, I don't want to waste everybody's time. But, well, but you have to. Um, the question was what? <laughs> the question was other ways that people blow it, whether yeah, they're pitching you or pitching other people. Yeah. But uh, I think in tandem, we can come back to that. Well, I have a son who's just turning 18 years old, and I don't want him to blow it. So. Uh, the other day, he, he was thinking a couple months ago to go, he really wanted to go to Tulane. There's a bunch of schools that are on the list, but he thinking Tulane. So now I'm at Aspen's Ide Aspen Ideas Festival, and I, we see Walter Isaacson, who I did the Albert Einstein series with. And I go, oh my God, you're going to meet Walter Isaacson, Tom Thomas, and not only is he this guy, but he is the key to Tulane. He's on the board. He's, so... He meets Walter Isaacson just before we go on stage, and he's talking. He goes, he's, my name is Tom. He's a great kid, amazing kid. He says, hey, and they say hello, and then I look away because I think things are going well. He's looking on his iPhone while I, Walter Isaacson's right there. That's not a good move, I don't think. You're me <laughs> you, you can't be on your iPhone while you're trying to have create connectivity. That just doesn't work. So I say to him, you're going to probably meet him again. And sure enough, he did. I said, you in your pocket have to have three things you could say. I don't care if you talked about Gucci Mane. He's going to go, who's Gucci Mane? You're going to go like he's trap. And he's going to go, what's trap? And then you're going to say it. It's mumble. What's mumble? It's trap. You know, like, so you have to have something to say. Um, or sporting, you know, like. Uh, you know, of LeBron. LeBron got traded. Oh, did he? Really? You have to say something. <laughs> <laughs> How did the second conversation go? Oh. The second conversation went, yes, better than the first, but there's still room for improvement. <laughs> <laughs> How, whether in the early stages or now, anywhere in between, do you choose the people to have lunch with? Because you have nearly infinite choice, finite time. 
how do you find the people or filter the people to select those you want to spend time with? Okay. Well, now it's almost a self-perpetuating system, but um, and people know I do this. So I have a trainer that works me out, and he goes, wow, did you see William McRaven's commencement speech in Texas? I go, no. And uh, so he shows it to me while I'm on my elliptical, and I go, well, I better meet William McRaven. And then I get to do that, and that was amazing. Um, but how do I do it? I, I, you have to you go to blogs, you listen to podcasts in your case, and you go, wow, that'd be hip to meet this person. But I, I said that so casually. You, you, you've, um, so that is a, there are so many ways to stimulate um, an interest to create a pool of possibilities. Um, I could also ask you about a specific person that I think you've met. And you ask me? I have a related okay. question with Edward Teller. Oh, yeah. How did you choose Edward Teller? Or well, why? okay, so Edward Teller was the, um, thought to be the, fight of the father of the hydrogen bomb and also was creating the Star Wars program to protect the North American continent at the time of the Reagan presidency, I believe. And that was like through missiles and webs and everything else. And I'm just wondering, like, if Jeff Bezos is in the room, because I did have a chance to have a curiosity conversation with him about 16 years ago. He blew my mind then, and I still get to be friends with him, and I know he's speaking, but he knows a lot about Edward Teller, much more than I do. Um, so if you're, you're here for that conversation, you might want to ask him. Um, <laughs> but I did put a lot Ryan of effort. Ryan Grazer told me to ask you. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> No, no, no. It's, it's, so, but he doesn't know. I know that he knows quite, quite a bit. So um, uh, Edward Teller took about two years to meet, and he said to me, it took about two years, and I met him, like, with military security around me right outside the LAX, like, outside of LAX private airport because he had a lot of Army guys, and it was, like, nearly a cavity search so I could have this conversation. And... Um, but he, ha he really, really had no interest in me. I mean, he, he had no interest really uh, in storytelling. And I asked him what was the last movie he'd seen. And he brought up Walt Disney's uh, animated film Dumbo. And um, <laughs> not that that doesn't qualify as a movie, but it was quite a while ago. <laughs> uh, so he just wasn't really that interested, but I was... I just kept going, just kept going. And then I remember Ron Howard and Tom Hanks, I had to go back to a meeting with them. They go, how could you take it? The dude totally insulted you. And I go, yeah, it was kind of a bad experience, I guess, but, uh, but I got a lot out of it. So you get a lot, you can get, gain a lot from failure. You learn a lot from failure. I learned a lot from the failure of meeting uh, Isaac Asimov, which took a long time too, as a preeminent writer, of, uh, author of science fiction and quite prolific. But, uh, I wasn't prepared well enough. I For got my little coach ticket to fly like about 35 years ago to meet Isaac Asimov, and it turns out his wife came, who was actually also his psychiatrist. Um, and I was talking at the Ritz-Carlton bar with them, and we were all drinking non-alcoholic beverages, and she just looked at me and said, let's go. And so they left after five minutes after I flew. Literally. But I did think, didn't feel good, felt like a big waste of time. 
Um, but it taught me to prepare. I hope I'm prepared for this. I think you're more than prepared. <laughs> uh, do you ever purposefully meet with people you know you will disagree with fundamentally? Yes, I purposely do. Yes. Why do you do that? Um, because it shakes me up. It wakes, shakes me up, wakes me up. Also, if you've ever seen, like, just quickly snap by just the fog of war about mm -hmm. McNamara. I mean, like, that's the point of that. You, you, you don't have to like him, but it humanizes him through ultimately entering his perspective as to how and why he became, uh, expressed why he was what he was. Um, so I met uh, Daryl Gates, who I knew I wasn't going to like. He was, the, uh, he was one of the, uh, the, the founders, creators of SWAT, SWAT team police uh, you know, and forensics, and became the police chief of Los Angeles, and was right at the center of the Rodney King riot, and uh, eventually got, was, was quickly uh, removed from office. So, you know, I do do that, yes. I've met many cult leaders, leaders of, of really very, very, I'm not going to say their names, very intense cults. What did you take away from those conversations? Um, how, it's, well, cult leaders are kind of like, in a way, they sort of um, operate the same way a dictator does. They, they're very, you know, they're seductive, they're charming, they're cunning, they're intelligent, um, but they have a belief system that they are going to impregnate you with. And um, it, it's, a, it's an interesting study to inhabit. So you mentioned very briefly, and we don't have to spend a ton of time on it, but I wanted to open the door at least. Eye contact. Yes. Uh, could you please share some of your thoughts or beliefs related to eye contact? Yes. Okay, so I just finished writing a book called Eye Contact. Um, but it's born, out of the, it's born out of the world of curiosity. Um, and I didn't even really, I mean, my appreciation for eye contact became kind of retrospectively, uh, came alive. Uh, the use of eye contact, the importance of eye contact, the, the, it's a tool that can't really be replicated through anything, and I don't think through AI. Um, and it's a way to create intimacy and trust, and you learn so much through eye contact. Um, and I didn't realize that it was so fundamental to all of my curiosity conversations. But it was only about a year ago I had, um, it was, I had a waiter that I go to a restaurant all the time, and the waiter said to my wife, wow, I really like Brian, but I didn't really know that I, I didn't really think that he could know me well enough to like me because I didn't think he knew me or anything. And he just said, I like him. He hasn't, I like him because every time he speaks to me, he looks at me directly in the eyes and it makes me feel like a human being. And I just thought about that. I thought, wow, it's really true. I know that's not deeply profound, but it was sort of deeply profound to me and I just kept thinking about that, and I thought about how that worked in every one of these. None of these curiosity conversations would have happened. They would have vaporized or melt down on the launch pad if I didn't really have eye contact. Um, because when you really have eye contact and it's happening, coming to life, it is again like a, gr a great date, and it's the best date, and it's, 
And eye con through eye contact, it becomes, you know, deeply neurological, and it's, it's, it's uh, very powerful. And I realized, and then I thought back to myself, I thought, well, my partner, Ron Howard, when I was really amped up and everything, like super amped up, um, <laughs> when writers would come in and meet with us just before the, our first movie in 1982, Night Shift, uh, he'd say, you don't really look at them in the eyes. And I'd go, well, I heard everything they said, and I can repeat it back. But he goes, yeah, but it, it's not respectful. And so I changed it sort of temporarily, but then I kind of lost touch, and then I realized that, you know, then I, then I uh, uh, animated it once, once again. But he, remember he said it to me, and it had a lot of impact, and it, you know, once again resonated. But there are times when you shouldn't have eye contact, by the way. Because I had a there in tribal uh, cultures, uh, you should look. Because I've had houses that I've owned in tribal cultures, and um, well, hold on, you've had houses you've well, owned in tribal cultures. Well, I don't know. Let's go to another question. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> I actually just did not interrupt you. Please continue. Well, no. Uh, the only thing I've been to basically, I had a house on the north shore of Oahu because I like to surf. And it's a little tribal there. It's, it's very it's hierarchical in that sort of tribal sense. And <clears throat> you don't, you, the word, you don't look, you're not supposed to look people right in the eyes. You look at them in the face to give them respect and just divert your eyes just a bit um, because that could produce a negative consequence. So pick your time and place. So you mentioned back when you were amped up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, I wanted to ask the question, how did your hairstyle come to be? As someone who no longer has hair, I'm very <laughs> curious. Well, it converges upon a couple of things. One was, <laughs> one was I, I was um, a pretty successful movie producer, and I wanted to have an identity beyond just, um, because I saw that the other, there were other successful movie producers, like four or five of them, and they all had facial hair, and, and I couldn't really grow facial hair. And so their beards were helping define them a little bit, and I sort of thought I couldn't do that. And then there was one producer that liked to throw stuff at people, and I didn't really want to do that. And so I, I kind of was at a loss at trying to, to you know, trying to create uh, an impression beyond just being a producer. And then I was swimming in my swimming pool with, with my daughter at the, at the time. She was like six. And I just popped my hair up, and she like, I love that. So I thought, really? So, so we get out of the pool, and we go, you know, and I put some gel in my hair. It wasn't my gel. It was someone else's gel. Put it in the hair, and she goes, that's awesome, da 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 And then that's how it began. <laughs> <laughs> and then... And then just to further that a little bit, so then I did it, and it was very, very polarizing. <laughs> Some people thought, a very small um, percentage thought, hey, that's cool, like maybe 20%. And 80% thought, what a dick. <laughs> and I, I could see that they thought that. And sometimes they said it. Um, and I just thought, wow, it's very, it's polarizing, but yet it reveals something. It's like a litmus test. So then I just kept it going. <laughs> so one of the things, one of many, that has really impressed me when looking back at your career is, is how 
persistently you have cultivated certain projects. And one in particular that I'd love to ask you about is 8 Mile. Could you tell us, and I don't know the answer to this, but the, how 8 Mile came to be? Okay, sure. Um, what if I said, no, I couldn't? <laughs> no, no I, can't, I, can't, I can tell the story. Um, so the way, well, my, well, I was dedicated to having curiosity conversations. Um, had to be, I should really know, but it was at least 20 years ago. And I was in New York, and I was in a cab, a taxi cab, and the cab driver had on, like, a local radio show, talk radio show, and Old Dirty Bastard is being interviewed by this radio, this, this radio guy, more than 20 years ago. So I'm going, whoa, this guy's choosing to be called Old Dirty Bastard. That's his choice. He wants to be called that. So that already was interesting. So now I'm listening to ODB talk, and I'm going, wow, this dude doesn't even make any sense. You know, like... <laughs> and, but he was so getting away with it and committed to it, I'm thinking, I want to meet him. Yeah. <laughs> so I find a way to meet Old Dirty Bastard, ODB. And it was a trip. Everything cost money. I mean, I, made, I met him. He said, meet me at a studio, but he wouldn't let me in the studio. I was on the sidewalk. Everything was like an a la carte thing. Like, if I wanted to go in, that would cost a little. If I wanted to watch him do something a little extra, it was bang, bang, bang. It was, everything was a, it was a la carte. I mean, you, so I just chose to stay on the sidewalk. It felt, a, <laughs> felt like that's what I should do. And I just thought, he is really, really interesting. He's kind of funny, but he's also, like, got, he's speaking some truth about what's going on in the inner city, what's going on on the East Coast in this in this music genre that was, you know, rap, early rap. And so I started thinking, like, what is early rap? What's going on? Da, da, da. So then that led me from ODB, I think, I'm going to meet Slick Rick. Now, Slick Rick is really funny. So he's a guy, a British dude, wears a patch on his eye and has to be carried in like this, like a king, Slick Rick, Rick the ruler. So I'm thinking, <laughs> so, so Slick Rick the ruler is really funny but also cool. Then that got me from that point. I meet Chuck D of Public Enemy, and that's another thing. And um, I'm thinking, wow, this is a really important movement that's going on. And while I'm in New York, because I do these missions, like I'll meet every, in 48 hours, I'll make a point to meet every magazine editor, like literally, of, uh, and sometimes newspaper editors. And so I can say this, I think I've met, well, I met a, the, the most, um, one of the more accomplished newspaper editors, Frank Rich. Frank Rich was really credible, really, really, really smart, and very high quality. And he said, I said something to him, I met these guys, da da da, and he sort of dismissed it as an inferior subculture. And I said, I don't think it's a subculture, I think it's the culture. And he sort of kind of, you know, blew that off. And, um, I thought, you know, I'm going to try to, like, look at this kind of as, a, like, an equation that I'm going to prove in a story form, like, try to bring some cinematic form to this equation and prove that hip-hop is the culture, the pervasive culture, not a subculture and much less an inferior subculture. So I went on this journey to try to do that, this learning journey that was 
more, more artists, more people, blah, blah, blah. And I wanted to capture the humor and the truth. And now I'm about eight years into just doing this, and I keep it alive, and I'm watching the VMAs that they're doing in New York when the VMAs were super cool, and the camera pans, and I see this kid, Eminem, and the camera sort of sits on him, and he's got this icy, icy urban glare, like, I'm killing somebody. And then, all of a sudden, he becomes this sort of fluid, self-effacing, guy that smiles and laughs and is really elastic. And I'm going, wow, what a range. So I'm thinking, this is really interesting. I want to meet that guy. So then I know, I go to my friend, longtime friend, Jimmy Iovine, who's like one of the more, most important uh, music producers ever, really, I think, and who's such a superstar for picking. And he goes, yeah, I can make it happen. But it wasn't easy to meet Eminem. But he said, I can arrange it. You know, he's kind of a recluse, but I make it happen. This is before he really blew up and became a star. So he comes into my office in Beverly Hills, and he sits there like this. And he won't look at me. I'm over here, and I'm, like, talking, and I'm talking, and he won't talk back, and I'm trying every little trick, and nothing's working. It's got to be 30 or 40 minutes into this. It felt like three hours. And he goes, I'm out. I'm thinking, you're out. <laughs> we didn't get to talk. You didn't talk. So I'm thinking, I'm going to have to beg him somehow. I have to find some way. So I, I used the word, like he's at the door. And it, I used the, something like, I don't want to say it, but it was like, come on, you can animate or you can something. And then he turned at me and looked at me like, Again, like, this is not a good thing to happen to Brian Grazer right now. <laughs> and, but then he sat down, and some, one thing led to the next, and he told his story, which was an amazing story, which became the basis of 8 Mile. And so he was able to fully encapsulate what it was, and it was just a flashpoint moment where he was able to grab this, and he wasn't, like, saying, I want to start it or anything, but I could tell it was it because... It introduced what rap battles are, which is very cinematic. And it was some, it was about, it had a theme that I cared about. All of my movies that I care about begin with a theme, not a story. Because themes are, they're not challengeable. Love, if, I may, if love is a theme, it's hard to challenge that and say, oh, I, I don't believe in love, you know? Or in his case, you know, his, his, that story was literally like, how is he going to get through these emotional injuries to become self-actualized enough to actually perform and to be liberated from all of his emotional injuries so that he could look at the audience and say what he said at the end of the movie, which I won't say in this audience. Um, but, you know, um, so I thought, this is amazing. And then I, we were able to get him to do the movie, and he ended up, of course, being the only rapper ever to win an Academy Award. And it was a great thing. He's so talented. So you, just to follow up on a bookmark from that, so what you said to him to get him to not leave was, come on, you can animate, or something along those lines? Yeah, I don't really want to say. I mean, it was something, it was a little you don't have to say, desperate but. like that. And, but I, I had to take my last chance shot. You know, he was at the door. Seems to have worked out. Sorry? I said it seemed to have worked it out. Seemed, it worked. It worked. I, I couldn't, it was like partially antagonizing maybe. I don't know. Or, I don't know what happened. But it, he talked. He, he came <laughs> back. 
<laughs> I mean, I have the utmost respect because I've worked with so many actors having produced a, you know, somewhere around 100 movies, and he was his per the most professional. I mean, he actually acted in every frame of the movie, wrote all of the music, won an, I mean, wrote all the music and composed the music, and, and was a father. Like, and he, he just, uh, don't get to see him much, but have the most respect for him. So we saw the sizzle reel earlier, oh. and <laughs> that was a pregnant <laughs> little, little comment. But uh, I, I think that uh, we could talk about, and we should, and we have talked about some of the successes. Do you have a favorite failure uh, meaning, a failure that set you up for later success, or something that was particularly helpful from the standpoint of learning? I have a lot of oh, I have a lot of failures. I mean, I I do. I mean, unfortunately, I've had enough good successes that that it sticks out. But I do have a lot of failures, and I fail different types of failures. Sometimes when I violate my own rules and I get lazy with my own rules about choice of a movie, where I get sloppy about lazy um, in the choices of building the foundation. Like anytime you say, okay, so I, I could, sometimes I've picked a director where I go, he's good enough. Because you're making a hundred decisions, hundreds of decisions. Good enough equals shitty. <laughs> so that never, good enough doesn't ever work. Um, I do have one failure. I mean, I have one, you know, a, a one failure of, um, I produced Apollo 13, and Ron, Tom, and I sort of became kind of friends. We're, we're friends and partners, and we all go, well, if we can just make this good, that's a win. And we're feeling so good about ourselves because we're feeling like we're making something good that's not going to make very much money, but at least it'll be good. Why want to make a lot of money? Because everybody knew the end of the movie. They all lived. <laughs> I mean, like, so, I, so then all of a sudden, um, we make the movie, and the movie does really well. And we're all really happy. But then the studio goes, don't, like a version of, don't be too happy. Let's see how it does overseas. So I'm realizing, okay, now I'm on this journey. I thought I was happy, but now I'm not happy. <laughs> uh, and no one's happy because it didn't get released overseas yet. So then it gets released overseas, does really well. We have a few more of these things. Wait till it gets to home video. Okay. So then all of a sudden, all the plat financial platform uh, uh, corridors are satisfied, and it does well. Then... I don't even think like this. Now the Oscars are coming about. And the Oscars, they nominate, there's like five movies that get nominated, and Apollo 13 gets nominated for a Best Picture. Gets nine Oscar nominations. It excludes Ron Howard, which is, was a super bummer for him. Um, and a bummer. <laughs> no nuance there, just it was a bummer. Okay, it was a bummer. <laughs> and then, so that was, for him, it was super, it was really terrible. But now we're in the Oscar race, and everyone is saying Apollo 13's 100% going to win. Las Vegas odd makers, everybody's going, hey, you're going to win. What are you going to say? Da, 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 da. I go, I don't know what I'm going to say. I, can't, I don't know if I'm going to win. I don't know anything. I, I've already had like up and down like this the entire time. So now what happens is it's the day of the Oscars, and I've got my speech in my pocket, right in my pocket. I know I'm going to be saying this speech. I know it because everybody said it. In fact, some very, very famous investment bankers, one of them came to my office who I didn't know, and he said, I just want you to say a few words about my pancreatic cancer company. And I go, I, I, I can't, I don't even can't think like this. You're jinxing me. This is too much for me, too much pressure. Um, and so now it's the day of the Oscars. I got my 
a tuxedo on, I got the thing, and we're at the last award, and Sidney Poitier is gonna open the envelope, and he's a very dignified and he's a very deliberate communicator. He speaks slowly. <laughs> and the winner is, and he's got the envelope in his hand, he's ripping it open, and it looks like he's gonna say Brian. I mean, because I'm, I'm, I'm hypnotized. <laughs> It, I feel like a bee is coming off his lip. So I get up, I, I won't walk. I get up and I walk all, well, very close to him. I'm up out of my seat and he said, Braveheart. That's not Brian, that's another movie. That's a whole other movie. So I have to turn around and walk back to my seat. Kind of, and I, I walk backwards because I'm so embarrassed and I walk backwards, and, and, and this is so, it's so vivid. I mean, this got me on like taking uh, sleeping pills because it was so, so when I turned around, one chairman of one studio goes like this, loser <laughs> to me. So I'm going, oh, this is such a bad thing for me. And, and so I sit down, in a sweat, and the real astronaut that Tom Hanks played, Jim Lovell, is like two seats down. He reaches way over Tom Hanks and Ron Howard, grabs my wrist, and he said, I never made it to the moon either. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a hell of a story. Uh, it's a, lo a long story. It is a, a oh no, one hell of a story. Oh, That's hell of a good story. story. Yeah. That's okay. good hell. Good Not bad story. hell. Okay. Uh, did that have? Well, actually, did it have a lasting impact, or were you able to brush it off? I mean, oh, so well. I mean, it left. <laughs> okay, what did I learn? I learned it. Well, what I learned was to. Um, Certainly not to treat anything as a reality until it becomes a reality and that reality is a fluid experience and that reality is always changing. Um, so whatever data that they were supporting that was going to win. So basically, you know, always stay down the middle lane. I was pretty good at that, but I did fall out of the lane and I thought, well, I could win and I'm going to win. I'm going to go up. But, um, and then I eventually I did win for a beautiful mind, but so that was good. But, be but because I was in the column of feeling like, wow, anything could happen, it could all go wrong, I, like, I couldn't, almost couldn't talk on that award. I was like, I went up, I was so nervous, and I had this piece of paper, and I'm shaking with the paper, and I look at Russell Crowe, and I say to the audience, I know that my nervousness seems imperceptible. <laughs> and they thought that was kind of funny, um, but then I noticed, like, all of the most, uh, the biggest female stars in the world were in the front rows, like Sandy Bullock and Nicole Kidman and every one of them. And I'd known a lot of them from meetings or working with them, and they were all looking at me like, you can do this, you can do it. <laughs> you know, because they could tell I was crashing, you know. And <laughs> Maybe it teaches you something about pre-anticipatory anxiety. I don't know. That sounds like a good answer. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it does. You, 
you mentioned when you violate your rules for choosing films or working on projects, and one of, one of the, I guess, one of the rules being good enough is shitty. Uh, can you tell us about any of the other criteria that you have for selecting or choosing the movies? I guess um, selecting and choosing are the same thing. I'm just well, trying to get fancy. Okay, so I, yeah, I, yeah, I start with a theme, and then I find a story that, that is compatible to that theme, that actually is a vehicle for that theme. So A Beautiful Mind, I was just being present, looking around my world, and I would see people, kids, that were stigmatized by even the mildest mental disability, and I, I felt shitty about it. I didn't, and I, you'd see, as you, you can see out in this area, you see guys talking into garbage cans. And they're not just talking into a garbage can, they're mostly living in an alternate reality. And that alternate narrative is the narrative of them talking into that garbage can. And it's not something to, you, you don't, you wanna understand it um, so that it doesn't, it's not cruel or stigmatizing. And it took a very long time to find a story that would be in service of that theme, but I did. Um, but you, you ultimately, I mean, ultimately, I've always said that I'm in the feelings business, that, that it's not really, I'm not really, as a storyteller, I'm only in the feelings business because if you can ignite a feeling in cinematic form, which is an abbreviated way to connect, right, go right into your bloodstream, um, then you've created some, an indelible experience for somebody that, and if it's, that if it has hope, because I try to make movies, I don't always win at this, but to make movies that have hope. I don't like, unha I don't like, um, to put out negative energy out in the world. They don't, but it doesn't have to be corny like Eminem's ending wasn't, corny didn't become, you know, it, it, it's just, or in, in Friday Night Lights, they don't even win the game. They just, come, they just become more complete young men um, and more mature and, more, and stronger. Um, so so um, I think feelings are so central, uh, they're the differentiator. And if you lose track of that, I think you're really lost. It's very important when you create any kind of story that your protagonist is suited for the population or the audience. So you really don't want to have a story that, um, I don't want, I want to end on that. What was that? Well, no, I mean, I, I think, well, if you have a story that's designed to have emotional impact as an endpoint, which is my goal, you have to think to yourself, is that, what is your audience, and make sure that the characters that are personifying this idea are the same age or likeness to your audience. Because sometimes you can, you forget that, and you go, wow, this is a young person's idea, and I have older people as protagonists. That often is just a calibration is, that is off. It's a calibration that's off. I made a movie that was, I'll look at our time, I made a movie called Fear. Fear starred Mark, Wal uh, Mark Wahlberg, commonly known as Marky Mark at the time, and Reese Witherspoon. And it was based on, a lot of the movies that matter to me are based on an experience like Friday Night Lights, like something I experienced, something emotional or real that I'm able to capture in a story or something I'm observing. So what happened is I have a daughter, her name is Sage, the one with the hair, the one with my hair up. So now she's, she's prior to that, she's three and a half years old, we're going skiing, she doesn't really know how to ski. We're in the chairlift, and I go, follow me as we dismount. She goes, no, you follow me. I thought, this is going to be a nightmare. Like, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be, at three and a half, she's saying follower. At 16, I'll be completely powerless. 
So I created a movie, this thriller called Fear, starring Mark Wahlberg and Reese Witherspoon, where she picks this guy that is really charming and cool and popular, but really a psychopath. But the father is powerless and can't just go, hey, your boyfriend's a psychopath. He has to be like, hey, you really sure you want to go out with him? And you have to really be, think it through. And so that becomes this horrible, this, this nightmare film that is a very, very, very effective film. Unfortunately, I picked, I lived it through the parent's point of view as opposed to the kid's point of view. So it shows the points of view, but it's balanced through the perspective and the, and, and the stakes are in the man's, the 45-year-old man's brain. If it were in the kid's brain, it would have made $150 million. <laughs> but when I put it in the wrong perspective, even though it was an effective story personified through, through the parents, it, was, it didn't do very well at all. But it was a good movie, but just didn't have commercial results because it was a kid's story represented through adults. Mm-hmm. So you have to actually line all, you have to calibrate all these things and be very precise about it. But I can actually apply, you know, there's like really um, by associative parts in storytelling to any one of your startups, I'm positive, because I, I happen to believe that everything is a story. Um, I mean, I'm sure it's refutable, but I think that every, everything is a story. And when you lose track of your story, or the, whether it's a company or human being, you, um, you, it, it creates a misdirection. Thank you for that. And you don't have to worry about the time. I'll watch the time. So okay, yeah. definitely don't worry about that. You mentioned good enough equaling shitty, which I like a lot. What separates a good enough producer, or even a good producer, from a great producer in, say, feature films? Taste. Taste. Just taste. Ta- having taste to pick, um, to pick the right subject, to pick the subject that is also authentic and hasn't been inhabited from either at all or, f- or through, the, through a fresh perspective. So the taste in picking the right thing, the taste in executing, knowing what is good and not good. It's, it's really completely qualitative. You know, like what, what some people think is a good meal, other person might not think is a good meal. If someone thinks, there are people that think that's a great car and there are people that don't think it's a great car. So I, I would just think taste alignment and the ability to execute it. And so when you build the foundational parts of whatever, whether it's your business or the business that I'm in, which is making stories, you have to pick people with similar taste. And I always, in testing that, I always go, well, what does it look like? Because I want the person to say what they think the thing looks like, even if it's just a feeling. So often I do this little, I used to do this little trick of like, I, I, would ha- I could meet a director that has very good credentials of executing great taste. But he might not see, he might, not be, he might not want to message the same thing that I want to message. So you really have to make sure, like, so I would go, like, if I made a comedy, and I did this before, many times, produced a comedy, and I got this A-plus director, and I go, well, God, what would it look like, Ted? And then they start talking, and, and we're ta- he starts talking about wide shots. Well, I know that's not right, because 
comedy is a close-up medium. You know, there's like all these little giveaways that I'm sure you guys will have within that you can codify in your own manifesto. So um, it's a very doable thing to uh, think through. Are there ways to cultivate taste? I or? still uh, make mistakes, by the way. I'm still very fallible. As we all are, yeah, works okay. in progress. Uh, is taste something that you can cultivate? Are there ways to cultivate it? Or is it more like height or something like that? It's fixed. <laughs> I think you can, no, I think you can develop, <laughs> I think you can develop taste. It's just, you just have to go on a journey to do that. You, you would, um, uh, and thought of it, but you would just have to be exposed to the execution of good taste in fashion and in art or in medicine or in technology or do some people see the uber picture in the game? And so you want to be exposed to those people. Like, why are you laughing? Because I, I, like, I think it's a good answer. Yeah. It's not a mocking smile. Yeah. It's more no, of no, an I, I agree, well, I guess, thank you no, smile. No, no, I know. Oh, cool. <laughs> no, I mean, some people do. They, they, they see things in, in, in an elevated way. Um, and sometimes they're accidents, but you, can, you should make it. I, I try to make this always part of my journey, but... Um, I mean, Harold Ramis, may he rest in peace, I adored him. He wrote Animal House and Stripes. And I met him, and he had such an, I thought Animal House was like one of the funniest movies, but he had a really brainy, Harvard brainy, I guess they don't have to always be aligned, but he had a very brainy way of stating what that movie was about. And I thought, whoa, that's really heavy, you know, like, and, and so, you know it when you hear it if you're available to hear it. But you can create a discipline where you try to sample stuff. Like, why is Gucci good now? Because if it's new creative director, who picked it? Pinot picked him. Why did Pinot pick him? How does Pinot pick directors? I mean, how does that work? You start going that way. I'm so interested in your questions, I could just ask questions all day, but last oh, question. We're winding down. Look we are this. winding down. The countdown clock. I've read, and there are a lot of things that are inaccurate on the internet, but that uh, you've said writing notes of gratitude always strengthens me. I don't know if that's oh. true, but do you write gratitude notes? Yes. I have a gratitude journal um, that somebody gave to me, a tech Tech Titan <laughs> gave me, a, a, I said, what are you doing? And he writes in this gratitude journal. So every day he tries to address this piece of paper. We, Veronica and I, gave them away at our wedding. We had, every person got a gratitude journal. And I try to, because I want to stay in my lane. I don't, I don't want to enter someone else's lane in terms of life, you know, their life choices or their value system or their economics or their lack of economics. I want to have compassion, but I want to be in my lane. And being in my lane, I can have gratitude, like thank you for the health that I have right now that animates my entire life, my mind, my life, my physicality. So I, I want to be in that zone. Well, <laughs> I think that's the perfect place to wrap up. Yeah. At Brian Grazer on all social media, thank you so much <laughs> for a wonderful time. Ladies and gentlemen, Brian Grazer. <laughs> Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that 
provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend. And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered, it could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it.